1995. South Africa has just won the Rugby World Cup. For the All Blacks, heartache and heartbreak. I now call on our president, Mr Mandela. A year later, international rugby turns professional and Sansa is formed with South Africa, New Zealand and Australia. And what a symbolic handshake that is when you think of all the years when South African rugby was on the outer in the world scene. A marvellous, wonderful moment. But South Africa could be causing heartache and heartbreak again. Reports over the weekend placed the future of the rugby championship in doubt with South Africa reportedly working on a deal to join the Six Nations. This was in the UK's Daily Mail. They reported that negotiations have already taken place and there's a sense of inevitability that the Springboks will drop out of the Rugby Championship after the 2023 Rugby World Cup. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, the move that some say will leave the Rugby Championship and New Zealand rugby in crisis. And this is what it boils down to. There really is a battle at the moment for money to, to try and keep their sport afloat. Nigel Yeldon is Radio Sports Rugby Editor. The Six Nations, I mean, it, it was first established, if you want to take it right back, it was established in 1883. It was then known as the Home Nation Series. So that was England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. And then in uh, 1910, France came in. France actually had played a couple of years prior, but they weren't officially part of the competition. It became what was the Five Nations in, in 1910, had obviously little breaks between you know, the world wars. And then that went all the way through to the year 2000, where they then added Italy, which gets us to that current point there. So it's a, a competition which, in terms of, of history, is is very rich, very, very full. And so that that's really just a very short, basic history lesson of, of what is the Six Nations, which is the the tournament that South Africa has been linked with. So now there's talk about it being a Seven Nations because... South Africa might join them. Yeah, the, that's the, the the story that was written by a very good journalist, I might add as well, and, and Chris Foy, he's, uh, he's outstanding at what he does. So yeah, the talk that it would be 2024, South Africa getting involved. Obviously though, what we have seen since that time, Sharon, is the new boss of New Zealand rugby, Mark Robinson, come out and say, well, South Africa is actually committed to the Sanzar Alliance, which is South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Argentina through until 2025. We're um, very comfortable in our relationship and South Africa's relationship with Sansa. Like us, they've, they've signed agreements with their broadcasters through until 2025 um, to be involved with Sansa. And as recently as this week, we were on um, calls talking about the future of our competitions. They've also got deals as well to South Africa too, hence the reason why there's this a little bit of, well, how much do we believe of this? I think this is the third team now in the past month. There's been reports out of the Northern Hemisphere are going to join the Six Nations. So um, that by my count, they're up to nine nations at some time in the next few years, which we all know is simply not feasible. There's a little bit of Fox saying, are they trying to do this to get a better deal here and there or they get their share of the, the bigger share of the, the market, I suppose? Do you believe it, Nigel? I think it's interesting. I mean, there's a, a lot of things going on, Sharon, and it's not just the rugby side of things. Some people say, well, it makes sense. Uh, the time zone is a lot more friendlier. I think it's about a two-hour difference. The main one, I guess, from a South African point of view is South African rugby is no different to, uh, I guess, the Australian rugby union, New Zealand rugby as well. There really is a battle at the moment for money to, to try and keep their sport afloat.
And all of the money, the vast majority of the big money in the sport of rugby union at the moment, Sharon, it's, it's in a very confined area known as the United Kingdom and Europe. So where does that money come from? Is it the broadcasters? Yeah, big broadcasting deals they have. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Six Nations has, has got some very significant financial um, deals going there. Um, a lot of the European competitions as well. Uh, there's some big money with regards to the broadcast rights as well in France that get chucked around too. And also as well, I guess the thing underlying all of this is that there is a private equity investor who has been very, very keen to get involved as well. So there's also that potential of an even bigger financial boost in that part of the world too. Now to sport and rugby. It's been revealed that the Six Nations tournament may be partly sold to a private equity firm. The latest proposal could see CVC, the former owners of Formula One, take control of 15% of the commercial arm of the tournament. We'll talk as well with regards to some of these private investors coming in and wanting to put big, significant money in, eventually, you know, to a degree, almost buying uh, certain aspects of the game. So how does it work? So the broadcasters or these other investors, they give money to the rugby unions of each country? Is that how it works? Well, my understanding, and I, I won't deny I'm not fully clear on this because uh, I'm a sports guy, not a business guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but look, uh, the likes of, I'll, I'll use the example of, of Sansar, Sansa is obviously a, a, an amalgamation of those uh, bodies that we spoke about earlier. Uh, they get together. They say, right, we're going to do this sort of a deal. Uh, New Zealand Rugby's got a deal with their own host broadcaster, which is Sky. In Australia, it's Fox at the moment. In South Africa, it's an organisation uh, called uh, Supersport. Uh, Argentina, it's ESPN. And so they all have those arrangements. So then obviously it's a package that they're able to sell to other broadcasters and broadcasters will buy their package. You know, the reason why in New Zealand we play games at 7.35 is there's quite a significant, or 7.05 now, but there's quite a significant um, broadcast package which is bought by uh, companies in England, and that suits their market better. And, and that's really what it comes down to. A lot of this talk, if we want to boil it right down to the to bare nuts and bolts of it, is that in New Zealand, South Africa and Australia, you don't have these massive economies, so they can't really go turn around and say, hey, we're going to play it here and you're going to, you know, you're just going to watch it at that. They've really got these people say, hey, well, we're going to give you all of this money, but hey, we'd rather you played it then because that suits our market better. And when you don't have a, a big financial base to, to, to work off, you've got to sit there and go, well, this is better for our sport, so yeah, we will do that. And so that's the thing. It's, it's the, the, the broadcast money really does drive a lot of the things, but it's pure and simple. New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, even Argentina to a degree, they're just not the big economic powerhouses like some of those um, European and, and United Kingdom countries are. Right. So is this disastrous for New Zealand rugby? If they were to go, I think it would be a, a significant blow. I don't think it would be disastrous. Um, but, you know, there is so much... Uh, history between South Africa and New Zealand. Um, and when you look at, I guess, the, the histories of the two countries, there are significant moments where they are just, they're, they're linked forever through the game of rugby. Like the 80s, what sort of thing? The, the 1981 tour to New Zealand, um, which obviously was very divisive. Police with short truncheons are trying to hold back a line of protesters who have got 
protected by plywood shields running the full length of their bodies. Protesters and rugby fans have clashed at Eden Park today. I see one of the protesters, a young girl, has just been pulled out with blood pouring from her face. New Zealand went over and was playing tests. 76 was the series I remember as well. There was you know, the height of apartheid and that sort of thing, uh, the Glen Eagles agreement. And then obviously South Africa went into the isolation. One of the first teams that they played when they came out was New Zealand. By 1992, the rugby world was ready to welcome South Africa back into the fold. And the honour of the first test went to the old enemy, New Zealand. So these, the, the, the rugby is something that really strongly links those two countries together. I mean, we'll see it this year, Sharon. This, this year, the, the next test you'll see played between the All Blacks and South Africa will be the 100th test match between these two nations. Um, mm. And so they, the, 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 the thought of New Zealand and South Africa not having regular contact at an international level or yearly contact at an international level, some people will go, no, that's... And this, that, that's just not on. Obviously, there's the Super Rugby component too. If the Springboks decide to go to uh, Wurdu to link up with the Six Nations, what happens with those Super Rugby sides? Do they then become part of those European tournaments as well? Would that leave then Australia and New Zealand you know, pretty much out on its own with trying to run its own professional rugby competition, which in turn they could make attractive to try and sell to broadcasters up in the United Kingdom? Would they look to join in with Japan, which is obviously enjoying a big a big push at the moment in rugby on the back of the Rugby World Cup? So there's all of these things sort of marrying around. But but it's I keep coming back to it, Sharon, because it's all, it's all about dollars and cents. Or pounds and pence. It's difficult to find figures that match up. But if the private equity firm CVC wants to take a 15% stake in Six Nations for £300 million, that puts Six Nations worth £2 billion or $4 billion. And a cut of the business is not all at stake. The Northern Hemisphere beats the Southern hands down for both prize money and broadcast rights. Nigel Yeldon says a South Africa departure wouldn't be disastrous, but... It would be significantly impactful. Yeah, because... in, in what way, though? I mean, is it... So, as you say, it's all about the money. So does that mean that New Zealand rugby would get less money because there'd be even less interest in people watching the rugby because this big powerhouse has gone to the other side of the world. I would, I would think so, yes. I mean, and then that um, trickles down to grassroots rugby, doesn't it? it? It trickles down all the way through New Zealand rugby. And that's what I say when it comes back to you'd have Australia, Argentina, New Zealand trying to put together a professional uh, competition which would be attractive to be able to maintain that level of interest. Now, if, let's say... South Africa were to to go, but doubtful of it myself. But let, let's say hypothetically that they did go. All of a sudden, England's got all those players that you remember that the big broadcast money that comes out of the United Kingdom. Are they going to go? Well, we've got South Africa, so we really don't need to pay you guys as much. Mm. So here's what we're offering. So you know that could lessen it. That could be one of the trickle downs yeah. that we would see. And then, as you say, because. The New Zealand rugby model, it's all about the All Blacks, then Super Rugby, then Provincial, and it comes all the way down that way. As you point out, that trickle-down effect, yes, I think it would probably have an impact on the real grassroots stuff. Who's got the power here? Who has the say in this? Can New Zealand stop it? This will sound a bit bit odd, but I mean, the first thing New Zealand would have to do is just keep winning on the field. 
because if they are winning the rugby championship, if they are beating South Africa, that makes them a, a, a more attractive prospect. And that there then provides uh, the power brokers in New Zealand rugby, like Mark Robinson and co, the, the ammunition to say, well, hey, guess what? Look, we're, we're still winning the rugby championship. We're still winning all of these games. When we go up there in November, we're selling out your stadium and you guys are paying top dollar. To go a little bit off track here, Sharon, a few, be about four or five years ago when I was up there, there was a, a discussion that I was part of involving, you know, well, South Africa sold out Twickenham, Australia sold out Twickenham, and the All Blacks sold out Twickenham. And the reply that came back was the average price for the Australian ticket was about £30. Mm. The average price for the South African tickets to Twickenham was £35. The average price for tickets to go watch the All Blacks was £80. Wow. And so in this situation, in order to give those people who will go and negotiate broadcast deal or look to go and negotiate and try and keep a Sansa alliance going um, beyond 2025, you know, you've got to be going, look, this is what we're doing. You need us. And that's the big thing that's come out since this story was written mm. is a lot of that talk about how um, New Zealand needs South Africa, how South Africa needs New Zealand. And you hear it from both sides saying, look, we need that regular competition against these guys. They bring the best out of us. They're physical. They're skilled. We're better because of it. And you hear it a lot. And I think come that first test that New Zealand and South Africa play in the rugby championship this year, I think you will hear that even more. You will hear people talking a lot about what they got out of playing against New Zealand, why it was the biggest thing for the Springboks, why for an All Black it's so hard playing against South Africa. And we're going to get these two countries at times seem to very much need each other from a rugby sense. So if South Africa stays with Sansa after 2025, what has to change? Well, believe it or not, this rugby lover says... There is just too much rugby. Everywhere, I think rugby would be better served by reducing the number of games that players are being asked to play. And this was the immediate pushback that we saw from the Players Association when the story broke about South Africa possibly joining, is the fact that this was an organisation who really didn't want the nation's championship to take place, talking a lot about travel and that sort of thing. Um, if you add South Africa to the... Six nations, make it a seven nations. They're not going to move when they play it. So they're playing it now sort of February, March, up in, up in the Northern Hemisphere. So you'd have teams coming down to play South Africa in February. So by comparison, in London this Saturday, the high will be 13, and it's going to be absolutely tipping down. Mm. In Johannesburg, it's going to be 28 degrees. Oof. And that's the big thing that really sort of tripped up the, the, the nation's championship was all the talk of the travel and that sort of thing and the recovery. And you you mentioned before about Japan, that, you know, the opportunities that could come out of this if South Africa does move to the Six Nations, that there could be great opportunities for Japan and obviously that's where a lot of the money is and also opportunities for the Pacific nations. Yeah, that's and that's where it gets really interesting because in terms of um, Japan, we know Japan has got the money. You look at their club competition that they have, that those clubs are companies and they are you know, what, top 25, 50 companies in the world. You know, Toyota, Panasonic, Kobe, these, these are 
big, big organisations with a whole bucket load of money. And when you join those particular teams up there, you don't become a member of the club. You become an employee of that particular business. So they've got significant finances going at the moment. You can see that with uh, the crowds that they've got to their their season uh, on the back of the Rugby World Cup, Sharon, they are selling out stadiums left, right and centre. <laughs> um, the atmospheres are absolutely amazing. And, you know, Japan has really fallen in love with rugby. And so they've got that market, and it was quite a key market as well for for world rugby. How that translates to the Pacific Islands, I think, is always going to be a fascinating one because the Pacific Islands need to get those players back from Europe. Yeah. And that that's where the big issue is always has been and so one of the big issues for me as well I think the other one is there has been uh, at times some very serious mismanagement of those Pacific Island nations by the people by the administrators running it that's probably a discussion to have for another day it's another podcast altogether that is another podcast altogether Um, but I believe that there should be if South Africa were to go that would leave you with Australia New Zealand Argentina as the three current members of that rugby championship. You could bring in Japan. Why not bring in uh, a Pacific Island or two Pacific Island nations? And here's what NZ Rugby boss Mark Robinson says about it. It's the right thing to do in terms of you know growing opportunities for things like extra revenue into the game and, and building a truly global game. So, so we think it's it's critical. We you know we would like to you know, bring. Uh, a sense of urgency to that for the, for the next little while. And uh, we're certainly actively engaged with, with those unions at the moment around those possibilities. So I think initially, you know, would a rugby championship involving New Zealand, Australia, Argentina, Fiji and Japan, would that be viable? Yes. How attractive would that be? Um, it would be, you'd have to take that to market and find out. There'd be a lot of people just looking at it going, well, just give the trophy to New Zealand every year, which I don't think would be... Uh, a truly accurate statement with some of the things happening in Australian rugby on the playing side of things. Mm. But that is what you would probably be looking at. What about the identity issues? You know, that South Africa identifies with the Southern Hemisphere and not with the Northern Hemisphere. Is that even an issue? Well, here's the thing for me, is that I think it is far too simplistic, Sharon, to talk about Northern and Southern Hemisphere. There are two clear divides, two clear pools in world rugby. It's the United Kingdom and Europe, and then there's everywhere else in the world. It's the tyranny of distance. In the Six Nations, the biggest flight time is from Dublin to Rome. It takes just over three hours. The shortest flight time in the rugby championship is Auckland to Sydney, mm. and that's just over three hours. Okay, so... You've got a really compact part of the world, which has got a lot of money, a lot of interest, a lot of history as well with regards to rugby. And if you're looking at a big flight time, you're talking, you know, less than half a day as your biggest trip. Yeah, that that's so significantly different. And then you pop it out. You look at what the the, the All Blacks need to do, will have to do. So they'll start off. They'll play their first game in Melbourne this year. Then they'll come home. That's Pretty easy sort of trip by modern standards. They then play two games at home. They then go to uh, Auckland to Buenos Aires, which is a a heck of a trip. And I'm assuming they'll go from Buenos Aires up to Mendoza, which I believe is where they're playing this year. Mm. That's about 11 and a half hours with a real nasty time change. I've I've done that one. It just 
continually beats you over the head for about three days after you land. It's, it's, yeah. it's a real hard one. After that, it's then over to South Africa. But there's no direct flight from Argentina to South Africa. You have to go via Sao Paulo. So there's a flight up there, sit around and wait, and then a nine-hour flight over to Johannesburg. And then you've still got more flight times depending where you're going, be it Cape Town, be it Durban. Uh, this year they're going to Nelspruit. Um, so you've got more flights then. Then you've got to fly all the way home, and then uh, you get a, yeah, a week off. And then then in order to go and do the Northern Tour, they're going to go up to Japan. Well, there's 10 hours. Then from Japan over to London, there's another 12. Then you get into that little routine. So the, the biggest thing that you know, works against New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, um, the Pacific Islands is the fact that they're, they're so far away from where, where the real money is. That, that's the biggest challenge facing world rugby, Sharon, is the fact that everyone wants, oh, we want a global season, we want this, we want that. Everyone looks at Europe and goes, well, this is how the competitions work. That competition can work when you're looking at you know, a flight time of three hours or a bus ride of four hours. That, that's a heck of a lot more manageable as opposed to you know, having to fly 14, 15 hours at a time in, in some instances. The, yeah. the big challenge for the global game is the size of the globe. It's not small. <laughs> Even, even though it's relatively small in the grand scheme of the universe and all that, the world is not a small place, Sharon. We need to a find a way. That's right. We need to find a way of shrinking it so that it's easier to, for rugby to um, to oh, be played look, around the world. If that whole Gene Roddenberry sort of time machine, you know, the the, the uh, transporter machine they had on Star Trek, if they could actually sort of, you know, figure out how to make that work more reliably, I think then we'd have no issues. That's The Detail today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The Detail's brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. Hit the subscribe button to stay across The Detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Nigel Yeldon. Ka nui tēnei.